he's still here. I can read your thoughts. <laughs> so, uh, just so you know, this sermon isn't usually one that would be preached if you wanted to have a whole bunch of people come back the next week. <laughs> well, we laugh and then we'll see. Uh, this morning we're talking about dis discipleship. Now, this word is used quite frequently in the church, but what is it? What is discipleship? People talk about discipleship, and sometimes they have absolutely no idea what it entails. There's a, a hog and a hen that share the same uh, yard, barnyard space, and they heard about a, a church's program to feed the hungry. And uh, the hog and the hen discussed with each other how they could help. And the hen said, I've got it. I've got, I've got an idea. We'll provide bacon and eggs for the church to feed the hungry. <laughs> and the hog thought about the suggestion for a moment, and he said, there's just one problem with your bacon and eggs suggestion. For you, it only requires a contribution. But for me, it requires total commitment. Well, that's the cost of true discipleship. And unlike our pig friend... It doesn't require your physical death, but a dying to self, a dying to self. A disciple is a learner. In Australia, when uh, a student starts to learn driving, they have to wear these, they have to have this plastic plate on the, on the back of their car that has a big L on it, so everybody knows that this person is a learner so you can avoid them. Uh, and they actually can't go above a certain speed, but they, they have to wear what they call L-plates, so you get your L-plates. And we talked about this when, when Lindsay and I were ministering in Australia, that discipleship is everybody is walking around with L-plates, not L for loser, obviously. We've already discussed what that word means. It's learner. We are learners. We are disciples. We are learners. We are growing in the knowledge and the grace of Christ. God is immutable. See, I like to throw my, uh, I still have the pride issue of showing my intelligence and my big words that I like, my theological words. God is immutable. It just means he is unchangeable. But we as created creatures are changeable. We change. Everybody is changeable. The question is, what are you changing and conforming to? What is the person or the thing or the idea that you are bringing your life into conformity with? What is the ultimate that you are pursuing? If your ultimate pursuit is wealth, then things in your life will come into conformity with all the things that benefit you financially. If your ultimate is comfort, 
then you will chase after all the things that will bring comfort and ease to your life. If your ultimate pursuit is health, then you will conform your life to doing all things healthy and and beneficial to longevity of life. It actually made me think of the, the woman, I don't know if you've heard this, and I know this sounds absurd, but there's a woman who wants to conform her life to being like a Barbie doll. And so she's had all these plastic surgeries to look just like a human Barbie doll. For whatever that's worth. Um, (laughs) But she has chosen what her ultimate is, and she's doing everything in her power to conform to that identity. Now, that doesn't always mean that you will be glad that you did it. (laughs) Case in point. Think about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, who pursued his ultimate... And by worldly standards, he was massively successful. But if you read his autobiography, he dies with a tremendous amount of regret. Discipleship for the Christian is bringing one's life into conformity with Christ. It's sitting at his feet through the studying of his word. It's growing in knowledge. It's growing in love. It is daily recognizing that our flesh, our our default nature, is to move out of conformity with Christ and to pursue anything but Christ. And that by renewing our minds daily, we strive to conform our lives to who it is that has saved us, saved us from sin and death. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells us about the nature of discipleship. So as we continue our series and you join with me, please turn to Luke chapter 14. And I will ask that we stand in honor of the word. I'm going to read it for us. It's only 10 verses. This is Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, 1623 in the Pew Bible. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, these are hard words. Who could accept it? And yet we know that you are the one who has the words of eternal life. So where else could we turn? And so, Father, this morning we ask that you would give us teachable hearts, that you would give us softened hearts. That is, this word of challenge and even comfort comes to us, that we would hear it rightly, that your Spirit would rightly administer it to us and send us out as your disciples, as your people. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember last week, we were looking at the, the banquet parables from the, the first part of chapter 14, and we, we saw that the, the inv general invitation uh, had gone out for invitation into the kingdom of God, that the, the, the word went out through the prophets that, uh, that there was going to be a specific invitation at a right time. And so when the specific invitation came that said that the kingdom was here, obviously a, a pronouncement that Christ had come, that your Redeemer was here, you put your trust in him, we saw that few accepted. And so others from, from outside were invited, the, the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame. And, and, and then we see that it's, the invitation goes to the highways and the byways, and it's the Gentiles that are invited into the community and that if we see ourselves correctly in light of these parables, we will seek to be genuinely humble with those around us, not seeking our own glory, but to have a servant's heart. We understand the nature of grace, that it's not something we could earn on our own, but it is a gift that is given, and the humility is the bending of the knee, but that we would have that servant's heart just as Jesus did. And now he's showing the great crowds what it means to follow him. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his, fa his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is looking for hateful people. People who hate their family. And yes, people who hate themselves. Right? Right? I've heard people that will take this text and say, see, Jesus' teaching is totally unbalanced. How can, you, how can you hold this? We know what he says. He, he, he's the same one who tells us to love our enemies. This is the same Jesus who's called the Prince of Peace. This is the same Jesus who tells his disciples that the world will know you for your love that you have for one another. And now he wants us to hate. Well, Jesus is teaching through hyperbole here. It is an obvious, uh, exagger obvious and an intentional exaggeration. But there is a deeper issue that I feel needs pressing in on here. And that is that I fear we have a, a cheap and a weak view of love. And I do not mean that as a culture or as a society because I don't have, I don't expect much from the culture and the society. We can assume that they will have a weak and a cheap view of love. I'm talking about within the walls of the church. Jesus is saying 
that your love for him should be so great that by comparison, all your other relationships should be held like holding an open hand. You don't cling to them. They are less to you than your love for Christ. Well, why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus is not looking for easy believism. He's not interested in trying to pretty up your life. He's not interested in giving you your best life now, to borrow a, a phrase. He's not interested, he's not in the business of, of putting lipstick on pigs. And I've realized I've used too many pig imagery here. <laughs> you see, what Jesus is interested in is a takeover. To be his disciples means that he is the sovereign Lord. He is the divine dictator. He is the ruler. He is the controller. He is the master. He is the king. And can I say, it is easy to fall into this trap in a large church like this, where it is easy to sit in the shadows and listen half-heartedly and then leave everything at the door on your way out. I know this because that was me for a time. You can feel good about singing your songs, and, and you've ticked your church box for that Sunday. But deep down, there's little desire to hand the keys over to the risen Lord and say, I surrender all. It, it can sound more like, I surrender very little. Uh, I surrender what is easy. And the modern church, in so many ways, with its desire to get people in, have sold people a bill of goods. That your life will be easy and you will prosper. All you have to do is convert and be baptized. Now, it is true, I must say, that you can lay your fears and your failures down at the foot of the cross, that there is total forgiveness and peace with Christ. But it does not say that your trials will disappear. It never says that life will now be easy. If anything, it says, don't be surprised when you face great difficulty. Now that you are a Christian, in fact, sometimes it says, Please expect more difficulty now that you've become a Christian. Right? Like I told you, this isn't exactly the one you want to preach to people maybe on your first Sunday if you're starting a church. But we have to remember that the road is narrow and few enter it. Discipleship says, I recognize that it was not me who loved first, that you, Lord God, were the initiator of love, that you sent your Son to be propitiation for our sins, that your full wrath was poured out on Christ so that we can be saved from eternal damnation, that I have no concept of what real and genuine love is apart from you and that this love now flows through me out to those around me so that because I am tapped into the love of God, I do love my family, 
I do love my wife. I do love my children. I love my neighbor. In fact, I actually love them more than I did before I tapped into the love of God. I love better. I love more fully. I love more sacrificially. And those relationships are stronger because of it. But if I do not get the origin right first, then I cannot be your disciple. And I cannot actually truly love others. I have permission for this, but when Lindsay and I were first married, we would ask each other, do you love me more than uh, fill in the blank? It was just a bit silly. We'd sort of, but there was an element of truth to it because sometimes we'd say something that we know the other person loved. Uh, you just wanted to make sure, just checking. Just wanted to make sure you didn't love me more than that. You love me more than that. But eventually we get to the point where we'd say, do you love me more than Jesus? Do you love me more than God? And of course I say, well, no. And I thought, gosh, that sounded cold. It's the truth. But here's the, uh, another way of looking at it. I love you because I love Christ. I love you because I love God, Right? It's a lens through which magnifies that, that love and that intensity to a greater and fuller degree. People have so much issue with the submission passages uh, of husband and wife. This child in particular is having issues with it. Uh, in fact, I led a Bible study with uh, a group of young girls, you know, not just young girls, there just happened to be a lot of young girls this night, and they were saying, I just, I can't find myself wanting to submit to a man. It's just, you know, because they've been told what submission is supposed to look like. So I said, let me ask you a question. Would you submit to a man who loves you the way Christ loved the church? Would you submit to a man who puts your interests before his own? Would you submit to a man who considers you in every decision that he makes in life? And they all said, well, yeah. I said, well, there you go. That's essentially what Paul is saying. It's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians. That's what that looks like. We don't play that game anymore, by the way, now that the ultimate answer has been given. So it's important that we understand the origin of love. It's important that we understand how it magnifies our love to a greater degree and intensity to those around us, the way that we looked at image bearers of God, even and especially people who are far off from him. And then secondly, listen to what Jesus says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, what does Jesus mean here? Because I think I've heard this phrase a lot, and I think it's important that we talk about what he's not saying. Many people interpret cross here as a burden that they must carry in their lives. And so it is a strained relationship. It is a thankless job. It is a physical illness. And so with self-pitying pride, they say, well, that's my cross I have to bear. That's my burden. That's the cross I bear. This interpretation is not what Jesus meant when he said, 
take up your cross and follow me. And in this passage, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, because we read, we read this knowing that Jesus went to the cross. That's the, that's the uh, symbol that he died on, the, the, the peace that he died on. We see that cross as a, as a, as a gracious object. Right? We drive past churches, and it, and it warms our hearts. <laughs> that would have been ridiculous to the people who are hearing this illustration, that concept. Because this audience here, they heard cross, and they saw Roman instrument of judgment and destruction and death. Okay, is torture. So when Jesus is saying, my disciples must carry their own cross, they are understanding that he's saying, Taking up your cross is a renunciation of your self-ambition. It means refusing all the rights uh, uh, to control your own destiny. It is a death to an entire way of life. It says, I have received the invitation to the banquet, and I recognize that the kingdom is here. And in humility... I am a recipient of grace, and that humility drives me to say, not my will, but yours. And it drives me to say, I am daily conforming my life to your will. And it drives me to say, I am daily dying to the flesh. I am daily feeding the new man inside of me. I am daily renewing my mind for the banquet And the new life I live with right understanding and perspective and recognition of what God has done for me so greatly far outweighs anything that this life or this world could offer me. The cost may be great, but the reality, the rewards are far greater. Do you see, this is, this is not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. It is essential for being a disciple. So if you're taking notes, there is the need to recognize our love for God. There is a cross-bearing, and then there is a cost-counting. A cost-counting. For which of you, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is further illustrating the cost of discipleship, not by telling you what it will cost. He's already done that. But now that he has explained the cost, he's saying, consider whether you are genuine in this endeavor. He's telling you to count that cost. Consider it. Do not start something like discipleship without understanding that it may cost you everything. 
Just as the builder does not begin the process of building without counting the cost, making sure that they are committed to the process, making sure they have the resources to finish, so the disciple of Christ must consider. Now, that could sound like works righteousness. I have to do it. I am the one doing the lifting for my salvation. No, Christ has done the lifting for your salvation. What Jesus states at the end of this section actually shows us what he's talking about. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The idea here being that there will be things that will detract you from your discipleship to Christ. He said them at the beginning. It may be your father or your mother or your children or your spouse or your brother or your sister. It may be your own life. And now he includes all you have. All you have is all you have. I I don't know how it could be any more clear. Everything. If you love any of these things more than Christ, then you will have started a project that you can never finish. You will have started a war and will be defeated because you made an impulsive and careless and hasty decision. Jesus is trying to prevent people from following him lightly. He's trying to prevent people from following him inconsiderately, from mere excitement. Men and women who, in in time of temptation, would fall away. You see, our faith is a rational faith. And sometimes people get caught up in the, the emotionalism or an experience. And there's nothing wrong with emotion and experience, but they are not your ultimate authority. They're not the thing that you lean on. Otherwise, we end up with churches with a lot of shallow people who don't understand depth. A lot of people that are looking for that next emotion. People who are looking for that next experience, and they're trying to bounce around from high to high to high and never becoming a disciple of Christ. Jesus knew that nothing does such harm to religion as backsliding and that nothing causes backsliding like enlisting disciples without telling them what discipleship will involve. I think it's important to say here because I struggled with this imagery. The builder and the king In this example, they count the cost to make sure that they have enough, right? But for the follower of Christ, it says, not only do I not have enough, I actually have nothing. I I have nothing. I contribute nothing. So there is the faith element that he will provide all that I need, which reinforces the disciple image. Do you see what I'm saying? Because the disciple says, I have nothing, I contribute nothing, but I trust in this discipler. I I trust in what he has promised. I trust that he is good. I, I know his character. I know his nature, and I trust him. 
And as you put that trust in him, he feeds that back out, and your faith is growing and growing and growing, and that process of growing in discipleship continues on and on and on, and your trajectory is upward. And so we tell people the bad news, that they are lost in their sin and they are separated from God. But then we tell them the good news, that Jesus has died to save us from our sins if we would put our faith, if we put our trust, if we put our confidence in him. But that's where a lot of people stop. They give the good news and, and there's no further steps. That's when we show what it looks like to move forward in Christ. It's not just a raised hand at an altar call or standing up or, or, or a quick prayer after a moment of conviction. That is just the beginning. That is just the beginning. Now it is a life of learning, of being a disciple, of having your L plates coming under discipline, right? Disciple, discipline, they're the same root word. But discipline is not a negative. The discipline is for our benefit. Otherwise, we end up with lots of people who pray a prayer out of fear of eternal damnation, but then they carry on with their life as if nothing has changed. Nothing has moved. Nothing has changed. And I've got my keep, Jesus keep me out of hell free card. Do you know who else acted impulsively from Scripture? Well, pretty much everyone in Scripture, but, but one, there's a character in particular. We look at the life of Peter. And Peter is, here's this man who refused to accept the outcome that Jesus was going to have to die. No, Lord, I will never let it happen. And then when it did happen, and someone looked at him and said, Weren't you one of his? Weren't you with him? And he says, I never knew the man, never seen him. Then when Jesus, after the resurrection, he, he's reinstituting Peter on the seashore. And he asks Peter if he loves him. Against the, he does it the three times in, in remembering the denial, three times the denial. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And every time he's answering, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, you know I love you, you know I love you. And he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my people, train them up, make disciples. And in case you weren't aware, you don't just feed sheep once, you feed them over and over and over again. That's why we come to church on the Lord's Day every Sabbath, every Sunday we come and we gather to be reminded of these things, to be reminded of what it looks like to be a disciple, to be reminded of God's character and his nature. It's a lifetime. Here's what John Stott says about all of this. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning to, and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. 
In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great, soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, whatever gain I had, whatever advantage in life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Here's a question for you. What is the thing, what is the object, who is the person that God could take away from you that would cause you to depart from him? What is the thing, what is the object, who is the person that God could take away from you that would cause you to depart from him? Finally, Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Just as salt devoid of its distinctive taste is of no worth, so a would-be disciple who evades Jesus' demand of self-renunciation, the distinctive hallmark of allegiance to him, that person is of no use in his kingdom. This is the picture of a man or woman who seeks to be a follower of Jesus but who will not pay the price of following. It's a picture of people who call themselves Jesus' disciples, but who still love other people more than they love him and who exalt their own concerns over his and who still cling to the things of this world more than they cling to him. As far as he is concerned, such would-be followers are as useless to the cause of discipleship as salt that has lost its taste, as salt that has lost its saltiness. They are good for nothing. They cannot, according to Jesus' own words, be his disciples. So where do we go with this? This is a hard teaching. I think we need to be asking ourselves what our discipleship looks like. Do we understand the priority that Christ must have in our hearts? Do we understand it? Do we recognize the need for cross-bearing, a, a, a denial of self, 
a denial of self-interest, a dying to self? Have we counted the cost, or are we just going through the motions? Are we playing church? It does not matter how long you have considered yourself a Christian. What matters is if you have made yourself available to be Christ's disciple. Everyone starts their journey somewhere. Discipleship is the process of being a learner. You have your L plate. It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. But being a learner also implies that you are growing, that you are making progress, that you're not stuck in one place. But if you feel like you are stuck, or perhaps you feel like you rushed into the Christian faith without knowing, without counting the cost, that's okay. Because today can be the day you say, my journey, my discipleship begins today. The Holy Spirit has spoken to you in a a unique way. There's lots of people in here. There's no way I could know where you are individually. But the Spirit does, and he may be speaking to you about this very issue. The road will not be easy, but the Redeemer is great, and he will carry you through. My greatest fear is that you would hear this and think, I need to try harder that I need to grab within myself and, and do something myself. When the reality is I want you to see how great the love, how great the, the price that Christ paid, how great his grace, how great his plans are for you, and for that to move you to say, I can do nothing else. I can do no other than want to be his disciple, to, to submit myself under his authority, because he is good. All the time. Let's commit this to his hands as we pray. Father, you know that this was a, a, a great challenge to me in investigating my own discipleship, in asking myself these hard questions. And so, Father, I would ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to understand love, help us understand your love, the the fact that Christ counted the cost and laid his life down. He, He didn't go into his death and resurrection unwillingly. He didn't go unknowingly. He went fully aware. Help us to see that love. And help us to see others through the new lens that we understand that that if we have that great love for you, if we hold you in highest regard, highest esteem, then our love intensifies for those around us. And that apart from it, we, we cannot truly love others, cannot truly forgive others. Remind us of the need to daily die to self. Remind us that this world cannot offer what you can. As we count the cost, may we have a fuller, clearer picture of your grace and your mercy. And Father, forbid that any of us be tossed out because of unwillingness. 
Speak to your children. Minister to our hearts. Send us out with the works that you have prepared beforehand for us to do, that we would have a willing spirit. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.